Everybody, thank you for joining this GPPR podcast. Today with us is Dr. Jonathan Ladd, Associate Professor at Georgetown's McCourt School of Public Policy and the Department of Government. He also co-edits the political science blog, Mischiefs of Faction at Vox.com. Dr. Ladd, thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you uh, for having me on. I'm happy to be on the podcast today. Well, let's jump right into the election. Last October, you wrote about the relationship between political science and political journalists, how every election journalists want to throw out the old rules and pretend that this election is different. Uh, last October, you were skeptical that this election did defy those uh, those old rules. Six months later, how do you feel? Well, I think this election has thrown out some of the old rules. Some things have happened that I've not seen and we haven't seen in a long time, if ever. I mean, part of what I wrote about in the fall was that just journalists and, and political science professors have very different incentives, right? When you're writing about the news, you're trying to write about what's new. And so your incentive is to say everything is new. And and because that's news, because things that are new and novel and different are news, and otherwise it wouldn't be exciting and news. Political scientists have the incentive to try to see how every new pattern fits into some theory that we know, or connected to history, or connected to well, this is like this other thing in history. We've seen this before, so our incentives are to go the opposite directions, right? Our incentives, political science professors' incentives are to show how this is something we've seen before and show evidence, and and journalists want to show how things are new. Um, so I'm a victim of that myself, probably. Um, <laughs> excuse me. I think on the Democratic side, we've seen a similar story to something we've seen a lot of times before. So um, there's, a, there's a long history of having you know, sort of an establishment candidate run against an insurgent candidate. <laughs> and the establishment candidate having a good deal of success, but usually losing <laughs> at the end. The insurgent candidate. I'm sorry, the, 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 yeah. the insurgent candidate having a good deal of success, but in the end, usually losing. Um, not every time, but, you know, uh, most of the time. Back to, you know, um, Gary Hart in 1984, um, uh, Bill Bradley in 2000, um, Jerry Brown in 1992 running against Clinton. Um, uh, and then occasionally, you know, insurgent type candidates do uh, win. And, and I'm thinking of incidents like um, uh, uh, McGovern in 1972, um, uh, Jimmy Carter in 1976. Um, to some degree, there's debate about this. You could, you could consider Barack Obama an insurgent, although he had some support within the party in 19, uh, in, sorry, in 2008. Um, so we've seen a similar story. On the Republican side, we really are seeing something different. I think I have to admit that this, this goes against my instincts to say that there's something different we haven't seen before. But this is something different we haven't seen before, um, uh, in that usually this doesn't happen. Um, usually uh, you don't have someone who is really disliked by, um, uh, has very little support in advance. I mean, some people are endorsing Trump because now he's successful. But absent, before they knew he was going, they thought he was going to win, you know, no Republican governors were endorsing him. No member, almost no members of Congress were endorsing him. Uh, and, and conventional conservatives are opposed to him. The national, places like the National Review are opposed to him. Um, and a lot of national conservative Republican opinion columnists are opposed to Trump and look like they won't be swayed to support him. So it's unusual. And, and um, he's been able to tap into anger in the electorate. He's also been able to tap into... Um, what I think we've learned is that you tap into two things: the failure of the establishment to coordinate. So the, the, the establishment was unusually bad 
at um, lining up money and uh, and votes behind sort of one candidate who who would be the dominant candidate as a, to oppose the Trump. So the conventional conservative candidate, as opposed to Trump, who has it's it's a brand of conservatism but it's quite different than the others. Um, the other thing is that that's different is they in addition to not being able to to coordinate. There are aspects of conservative media that's not playing the game. Traditional, I'm, I'm, especially I think underreported it is that Trump's gotten a lot of support from talk radio. Um, and it's not reported because most people in Washington, Republicans and Democrats don't listen to talk radio. I think I will go so far as to say that even most like uh, conservative sort of elites in D.C. don't enjoy listening. It's not an enjoyable experience for them to listen to talk radio, so they prefer not to and don't know. But if you actually listen on a daily, and it's hard to search. It's not like web searchable. So, you know, people who are used to you know, uh, searching for things on the web and reading web commentary and things like this. But a lot more people listen to conservative talk radio than read the National Review, for instance. And, you know, if you listen to Rush Limbaugh or um, Michael Savage or Mark Levin, right, they've been very sympathetic to Trump. And so the, this part of the party, this, this conservative talk radio... Um, uh, and the, the sort of real disgruntlement among the electorate has create, you know, given Trump support that and there's no candidate like Trump that I can think of an example. They, they were in deep in American history. They've been sort of more, um, more authoritarian, sort of right wing populist candidates who've done well, but they've been done well, you know, with the support of the party. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, it's some you could make the argument that there were some there were some aspects of this sort of right-wing populism in Andrew Jackson, for instance, but he was had the support of his party, <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, yeah, try to think, and to some degree, um, even sort of nativism and, uh, in, uh, and, and um, racist appeals in, in Woodrow Wilson, even. But there, and he had the support of his party, though. There's no example of someone like this coming out with, that, that, that mo- huge numbers of people in the party don't, don't support and just, like, taking over the nomination. I've never seen anything like this. I don't know of an example of something like this. So how do you think this translates into the general election, assuming that Donald Trump is the Republican candidate? It would be a situation where you know, perhaps we see a third-party candidate rise up to take those middle votes, or is it a situation where we could see low voter turnout? Or since you know Bernie Sanders has been so popular on yeah. the liberal wing, and now we have this outsider on the Republican wing, is it a new coalition that's formed to elect, say, an outsider? The hard part is... is I disagree with people who think there's much similarities between, you know, Sanders and Trump. I mean, other than they're outsiders. I mean, their support, there's no real overlap between their support. They're all, uh, supporters all want an outsider, but want a very different kind of outsider. Um, um, and what I think is going to happen is, is it, it, you know, we'll know tonight. It's uh, um, But if, well, the, so let's say if Trump gets the nomination, <laughs> it, um, um, uh, I think it's unlikely there'll be some some real centrist. There'll be no centrist Democratic leaning, liberal leaning person like like Bloomberg, um, because that's basically that's basically Clinton. I mean Clinton. Oh, there's overlap. There's too much overlap with with Hillary Clinton. Um, and I think my view at the end of the day is. Um, the, that the Sanders people aren't disgruntled enough to run a third party candidate. Basically because if you look at the, the polls on the Democratic side, 
both Sanders and Clinton are popular. If you look at like just personal ratings, like they both have personal, you know, 80, 70 to 80 to 90% favorability ratings among all Democrats. Like people disagree about who they prefer, but if you if you ignore, you know, just people on Twitter and, and internet comment boards, most people are actually like both of them. That's not true on the Republican side where <laughs> the Republicans who support Trump really don't like the other candidates and the Republicans who like the other candidates really don't like Trump. So you're more likely to get this year, I think, maybe a more establishment Republican candidate running a separate a separate campaign. And that's if Trump, you know, if Trump wins Ohio and Florida tonight, um, that's what we'll see. Now, if, if Trump wins um, Florida but not Ohio, if Kasich wins Ohio, which, which just means that it, Trump might not have a majority of delegates then in the nomination, then you might see the fight, not in the general election, but at the, at the um, convention. And I don't know if we... Um, we've ever seen something quite like that. I mean, the closest analog is 1968 to the Democratic Convention. Before we had primaries and before most of the delegates were chosen by primaries and caucuses. But, and, and, and so they weren't pledged. But a big fight at the convention rather than in, rather than in the general election um, we might see. So I, th I think the, the, the most likely thing is some sort of conventional Republican having some, making, some sort of, making some sort of run. And it's possible. I'd like to pivot to the media. Uh, you wrote a book about the relationship between uh, the public in general and the media, and I'll let you take it from here. How do you characterize that relationship? Um, well, the both Democrats and Republicans have become more skeptical of the media in general um, in the last 30, 40, even 50 years, since the 60s and 1960s, 1970s. Um, it's been especially acute, though, among Republicans. Um, so even Democrats trust the institutional establishment, mainstream media, if you will, less than they did. Um, but Republicans really trust the mainstream media less than they did. Um, and what you've had is that these sort of Republican-affiliated media organizations um, are now a big part of the party. I think we thought, think of them as independent party actors in addition to governors who might endorse candidates and senators who might endorse candidates and, you know, donors who might endorse candidates. Now you might think about, well, who is, you know, who is Fox News going to support the most? And who is talk radio hosts going to support? Or who are talk radio hosts going to support the most? And think of them as, you know, influential parts of the party coalition. And what you've seen, interestingly, is that different Republican-affiliated media outlets going different directions. So, um, like the more establishment party uh, groups... Fox News has maybe not as aggressively as they as they should have if they wanted to get their way, but most Fox News have been tough on Trump. Um, the first very the very first uh, I think it was the very first debate um, in the summer um, they started with with Megyn Kelly um, uh, bringing up all the things Trump had said about women and some of the things that are being aired in commercials now, um, but being really tough on Trump. And when they get when you had another Fox News debate. Uh, um, later with Megyn Kelly again, they were tough on Trump again, showing clips of him being inconsistent. Showing they've been very tough on Trump, with a few ex exceptions. The exceptions being people who are also talk radio hosts, like Sean Hannity. But that's the example. So, but that's that's that give you the bridge, which, which is that Fox News has been skeptical of Trump, but talk radio has been quite sympathetic to Trump, and it's gone relatively below the radar. So we say, like, why? Why the Trump supporters are defying the part, completely defying the party completely defying what everyone's telling him to vote for. Um, it's to some degree true, defying who, you know, 
uh, you know, the Speaker of the House and the Senators would want them to vote for and who Fox News would want them to vote for. But if you're listening to talk radio all the time, you're hearing some pro-Trump messages all the time. And so the, 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 not all the media has gone along. And, 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 and it could be because, and, and David uh, Frum, the former Bush administration official, who's now sort of uh, uh, got, become, become, you know, uh, given up the standard Republican line and is, is considered a disloyal Republican by some Republicans. But, you know, he said basically, he's pointed out, I think accurately, that one consequence of having the conservative media being so influential in Republican politics is that sometimes they have their own commercial incentives that might differ from the, Republic, the party itself getting themselves elected, right? So they might want it. They might be do. They might think that you know, the best way to get ratings is to talk about Trump and to be support Trump. Maybe that's sincerely who they support, but but also maybe it's a good way to get ratings. But it's not maybe the best way to elect a Republican president is to nominate Trump, even though it may be the best way to get talk radio ratings. And, and you, in some degree, you may go be able to go so far as to say like, you know. It's not in talk radio's incentive financially really to have a Republican president at all because ratings are maybe higher when you can get mad at a Democratic president. So, I mean, Frum has pointed out, I think, accurately that just in general, the, the incentives of conservative media, Fox News and talk radio, aren't always aligned with the incentives of the Republican Party, even though there's just these huge players in Republican politics in a way that Democratic or liberal sort of news outlets are, are less so because there are more Democrats who still, not as much as used to, but who still, you know, uh, follow um, news outlets that are considered liberal by a lot of the public, but who, news outlets that see themselves as not democratically affiliated or see, don't see themselves as liberal. I'm talking about like NPR and, you know, CNN and, 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 and well, I'll leave out of that MSNBC, but like NBC News and the networks and stuff. They don't see themselves as liberal. They don't see themselves as um, carrying water for the Democrats, um, and so they they don't have um, um, they don't have really sort of um, ideological outlets um, that are more as influential in their primaries as, as Republicans do. And even in the mainstream media, um, you know, outside of talk radio, outside of uh, Fox News, uh, you see a, a large disparity in terms of coverage for the Trump candidacy. Um, is that all commercially driven, um, ratings driven, or is there other some other uh, sort of incentive for them to cover this much Trump? I think it's ratings driven. I mean, I think uh, even um, you know um, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, um, other TV. I mean, you know, you know, regular network TV channels, um, um, other news channels. You know, they cover a lot of Trump, not all positively. But they cover Trump's speeches, and some of them might as well be positively if you're just covering speeches. I think that's commercial. I mean, it's sort of like um, it's commercially driven. I think just like you said. I mean, I think um, um, he's found a, a loophole in the system a little bit that even if you don't like Trump, um, and if you're not you're not going to be moved by commercial incentives to endorse Trump, right? Even if your viewers don't, because even if your viewers don't like Trump, they're going to tune in to watch Trump. <laughs> I mean, like it's more it's, it's more exciting compelling shocking than whatever else they're gonna these cable news channels are gonna air on a, on a weeknight and so they they air every news conference every speech in primetime he airs i mean all the networks um, well all the cable news networks cnn msnbc and um fox aired his whole press conference 
um, last Tuesday, after last Tuesday's results, um, uh, over, even though they aired at the same time as Hillary Clinton's victory speech. Um, uh, and there was another Republican candidate who was also speaking at that time. And the only, the only exception is MSNBC, then later in the evening, when the ratings were a little lower, after Trump was done, they, MSNBC aired a, a, Clinton's, a Hillary Clinton's speech on tape. <laughs> and so they, they, MSNBC wanted to air her speech no matter what. But the other, but the other networks didn't air her at all. So, so they're all going to just air Trump because, and, and and you know all the journalists, conservative, liberal, pundits, they're all watching and tweeting about all the every Trump speech because you're shocked what he's going to say. So I mean he has used these skills as a reality show host and star and. and and to figure out what's compelling TV, um, you know, and that's helped him get more coverage. And part of the big thing is it helped prevent the Republicans from coordinating against him. It helps because they want to coordinate on one anti-Trump alternative, right? Because Trump isn't always getting fifty percent of the vote. And could um, on an anti-Trump one anti-Trump figure get fifty percent of the vote? I don't know. Maybe not, but we haven't gotten to that. I mean, I mean, you want to test that if you're opposed to Trump. And they, they can't get one anti-Trump figure enough press coverage, and as well as, you know, uh, the other candidates withdrawing, so that you can have a clear one-on-one -on -one fight with uh, Trump in these races. Maybe it's Cruz, and there's some problems with Cruz, since a lot of Republicans don't like Cruz. But maybe it's Cruz. Maybe it's Kasich. For a while, people thought it was going to be Rubio. I was like, it's not going to be Rubio. But it's, it's the Trump taking out of the, all the media oxygen out of the air <laughs> makes it harder for a, a, a one figure to emerge as the clear Republican Trump alternative. Now, one thing that's become ubiquitous this campaign season has probably been that way for a while is polling. Um, can you talk you know, fairly briefly about the evolution of polling since the advent of cell phones? Sure. So, I mean... It's a miraculous that polling works as well as it does. Even in, in there, there are polling mistakes in some races, most notably Michigan, um, because it used to be that there was a sim we could understand how polls work with fairly simple statistical theory. Basically, you could draw simple random samples because um, pretty much every household had one landline, not less and not more. And so you could randomly sample landline phone numbers um, and you'd have a random sample of households and you could adjust a little for the size of households, but that wasn't that hard to do. I mean, now, you know, there are a lot of people have more than one number, one, one phone number, and some people have landlines, but no cell phones, some people have cell phones, but no landlines, some people have both. Um, and so there are two responses to this. Um, some poll polling organizations, um, like YouGov is a prominent pollster that, do, that does this. Um, uh, SurveyMonkey does this as well, which is to um, uh, randomly sample addresses and then get people to agree to periodically answer your polls in what's called, called a panel. So you answer, you've been sampled based on ad, your address and then you answer a, a question online. Um, the other response is to just draw fresh phone samples but the fresh phone samples, we can't just sample um, uh, landline phones. So instead, these organizations like like Gallup and Princeton Survey Research Associates 
um, and other survey uh, phone pollings and Pew when they do phone polls we use a mix of cell and landline phones um, but they it's hard to know exactly what percentage should be which right because some some people have only cell phones some people have both some elderly people have only landline phones and, and, and they vote in a high proportion so they're important um, and so oftentimes the, these organizations will just say well we decided that half our sample is landline half our sample is cell or or you know, or you know um, 40% is landline, 60% is cell. Well, where does that number come from? Well, it basically comes from nowhere. They just trial and error. They just they just pick that number and it seems to work. And they they so they they say we're gonna we're gonna have half. Let's say let's say they pick half. We're gonna have half cell phone, half landline, and um, get get samples of those both those types of numbers. And then whatever we get, we're gonna do some weighting to adjust to the census data on how the demographics should be. Right, so people who are underrepresented, we're going to weight them up. People who are overrepresented, we're going to weight them down to the degree that to which our sample doesn't match the census. And you'd think that'd be problematic. In practice, a lot of times those polls are accurate. <laughs> um, especially, you know, the best way to get accurate uh, polling predictions is to average the sum of lots of polls. And a lot of organizations do this. So, so Huffington Post calculates polling averages of all available polls. Real Clear Politics does this. Five Thirty Eight does this. Sometimes they're accurate. Sometimes they're not. You know, in, in Michigan was a good example that they weren't that they weren't accurate. They um, the the polls. I my memory is it had had Clinton up by over ten points, and then she ended up slightly losing. And so clearly, um, clearly, what happened there was um, the samples weren't right or their estimates of who in their sample was going to vote was off, right? Because the other challenge is that apart from sample, the, the final challenge is that apart from sampling, you have to figure out who's going to turn out and who's not going to turn out. Um, and figuring that out, so among the people answering your poll, you ask them some questions and try to figure out who's going to vote and who's not going to vote. And um, the easiest thing is a general election when the turnout's probably, when in a presidential general election, for example, where the turnout's probably going to be maybe 50%, maybe 55%. Um, but as turnouts get smaller and it's harder and harder to vote, it's, it's harder and harder to pick when your sample is going to vote. So primaries are harder than general elections to develop a likely voter model and figure out who's going to vote. And caucuses are, are the hardest because a smaller percentage of people vote. Um, it's harder to vote, so it's more uh, a select group who has the time to show up at a certain time. So, so um, they get harder and harder to poll. M- Michigan was a primary, but still... Clearly, the polls systematically got it wrong because the polling average was way off. How do you see polls working for policymakers? Are we becoming too reliant on them? I mean, I think policymakers rely on polls less than people think. (laughs) So maybe the problems with polls aren't as bad as we think. I mean, so people have tried to um, do studies over time of key of key legislation that's been passed and see whether, you know, what was in the legislation was dictated by exactly the what poll results and how polls changed. And actually, when people pass major pieces of legislation and you try to see, well, are they changing what's in it to match the polls? Are they putting in it what's popular and what's not popular? I mean, a lot of these studies find that they don't a lot of time. I mean, um, I think... Um, uh, and I think that's probably a good thing. <laughs> I think... Uh, because opinions change a lot uh, over time, and um, opinions are more responsive to outcomes more than policy inputs. So the 
uh, after the fact in the next election, poll, the polls are much likely to respond to whether your healthcare reform like worked and whether, whether it seems to have been implemented well and it seems to have driven down costs and they like the results than what they thought about it when it was passed. <laughs> and that's, that hasn't solved all the problems for the Affordable Care Act, for instance, because um, it, it, you know, the implementation has been good but not perfect, and so there are things to dislike still. But um, it hasn't been a disaster, which and that would have hurt Obama and, and Clinton. So I think when people are passing bills, largely major pieces of legislation, and I've talked more about politicians more than the bureaucracy establishing policy, but let me talk about, let me stick with politicians, which is, I think they mostly pass bills that they think are good policy and will produce good results. I think that's probably the right attitude because um, the poll, if you track public opinion in the polls, it responds in the future more to results and whether things work than whether they thought in advance they were going to like the policy. So whether, whether you know, whether some, the stimulus bill or, or, or uh, has brought the economy back in time, <laughs> has, has helped the economy recover in time or not. Um, whether the uh, healthcare bill has been implemented smoothly and has got results and if it didn't. Um, and, and that's what determines, you know, whether Democrats are gonna be popular next time or Republicans are gonna be popular so I see no evidence that polls have become more influential over time, and I think, and I think, I hate to say, I hate to say positive things about about how the policymaking process in Washington and how it's, but, but I think that's smart. I think of all the other, for all the other problems, you shouldn't make policy and make you know small decisions and small term decisions based on specifics of what you think is going to poll well. You should do what you think is going to work. <laughs> that's my yeah. Dr. Lab, thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GPPR podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more, check out gppreview.com, our Facebook page, GPP Review, and our Twitter, at GP Policy Review.